I invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 10. Michael Cassidy was recently charged with a hate crime. Cassidy is a Christian, and what makes his situation unique is who specifically Cassidy committed his hate crime against. Satan. Or more specifically, a statue of Satan. The statue was placed in the Iowa State Capitol by an organization called the Satanic Temple of Iowa. The the whole display featured black and red ribbons, pentagrams, numerous candles laid out like an altar before the kind of the, the main part of the display, a statue of the horned goat demon Baphomet. It, it wasn't a particularly well-constructed statue. It was made out of, among other things, pool noodles. But there it stood, a shrine, an idol to Satan himself in the state capitol. Until Michael Cassidy saw it, walked up to it, and proceeded to knock it over. And after knocking it over, he took the goat head of the idol and he threw it into a trash can. And he noticed no one really reacted, and so he knew that he violated the law, so Cassidy found the the Capitol Police and turned himself in. And then he said in a statement later, quote, I saw this blasphemous statue, and my conscience is held captive to the word of God, not to bureaucratic decree, and so I acted. The Satanic Temple of Iowa pressed charges, and Cassidy has now been charged with a hate crime and third-degree criminal mischief in violation of individual rights. Well, after Cassidy knocked over the pool noodle demon statue, online debate ensued, and many commentators condemned Cassidy, saying knocking over idols is not very nice, it's not an act of Christian love, and that he violated the Satanist organization's right to express their religion. And as I listened to these critiques, I couldn't help but notice most of these commentators didn't seem bothered by a more basic, in my mind, more concerning detail of this story. There was an idol dedicated to Satan in the state capital. Idolatry is alive and well in our world today. In other words, it is a lot like Judah during the ministry of Jeremiah. So last week, we examined a portion of Jeremiah 7, which is sometimes called Jeremiah's temple sermon. And God exposes Judah's false worship in the temple and their corrupt lives outside of the temple. And Jeremiah continues to preach against their faithlessness and their sin in Jeremiah 8 and 9. And our text this evening, Jeremiah 10, 1 through 16, is a detailed rebuke of another one of Judah's persistent sins. Idolatry. Idolatry. 1 John 5.21 commands us, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And when you hear the word idols, don't merely think physical object you bow down to on a shrine. Broadly speaking, an idol is anything that we love more than God. And as we will see, idols take many forms in our lives. And one of the best ways to fight idolatry is to train ourselves to be people of comparison. People who constantly compare the vanity of sin 
and idolatry with the glories and riches of Christ. If an idol is anything that we love more than God, one way to destroy that sin in our lives is to constantly compare these false idols to the one true God and to grow in our knowledge and love for him. And Jeremiah 10, 1 through 16, does just that. This text is going to expose idolatry, but it does more than that. It magnifies the God who reigns. It contrasts the one true God's power and glory against the pathetic nature of idols. So as I read through this passage, listen for how the text contrasts idols with the Lord. Look in your copy of God's perfect and holy word, Jeremiah 10, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word which Yahweh speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, do not learn the way of the nations. And do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the statutes of the peoples are vanity, because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They make it beautiful with silver and with gold. They strengthen it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot take a step. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. There is none like you, O Yahweh. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether senseless and foolish. They are a discipline of vanities. It is mere wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of wise craftsmen. But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. When he gives forth his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Every man is senseless, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his graven images, for his molten images are a lie. There's no breath in them. They are vanity, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. The portion of Jacob is not like these, for the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is his name. So from this text, we will see mockery and doxology so that you will turn from idols and glorify the one true God in your life. So first, we will see mockery, our idiotic idols, and second, doxology, our glorious God. So the way we're going to work through this text is a little bit different. What we're going to do is work through and extract everything it says about idols and then work through again and extract everything it says about the Lord. So we begin first with mockery, our idiotic 
idols. Before the mocking from Jeremiah begins, there is a command. There is a call to repentance right up front in verses 1 and 2. Hear the word which Yahweh speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, do not learn the way of the nations. This had always been a threat to the people of Israel. So God warned them repeatedly in his law to be different, to be distinct, to not look at the nations and say, let's try that. So the command is do not learn, meaning don't do what they do. Don't act like them. Don't imitate the world's morality or the world's religions or the world's practices and customs. Yet for Jeremiah's audience and for us today, this is so easy to do. It comes naturally to us. Even as believers, it doesn't take effort to be like the world and to learn the way of the nations. Have you ever been to a water park and been on one of those lazy rivers? It's very slow water that kind of takes you in a big circle all around the park. You just kind of float, and you sit, and you relax, and the lazy river does everything. It just kind of carries you along. All we need to do to learn the way of the nations is that. Just be in the river of the world, be passive, not actively take our thoughts captive to the world, and we will naturally, without even realizing it, learn the way of the nations. Because the world, the way of the nations, is all around us. It's popular. Everyone is doing it. Idolatry is the ultimate form of peer pressure. We think of idolatry or as, uh, we think of peer pressure as something high schoolers or middle schoolers deal with, but we're all tempted to believe and follow after the ways of the world and the world's idols and customs. The idolatry and ways of the nations are on social media and on the cover of magazines as we check out at the grocery store and in entertainment. So if we are not diligent, the idols and ways of the nations will seep into our lives. And to help Judah and us see through this veneer the lunacy of idolatry, the Lord dismantles and mocks it piece by piece. So here are multiple reasons following idols is foolishness. We're going to see four of them as we work through the text. First, idolatry is superstitious. Idolatry is superstitious. Jeremiah says in verse 2, do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. So pagan religion put great emphasis on astrology, on what they could see in the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars. Cosmic bodies like comets or eclipses were viewed as indicators of the future, things that they could look to and turn to to know what's coming, ways to find deliverance from trouble. So instead of trusting in the Lord, the people of Israel had started turning to these pagan practices. So the Lord calls them, do not turn to the foolishness of the signs of the heavens to trust in. They turn to astrology to cope with their fear of the future. And this is no different than those today who look to astrology or psychics or indicate for indications of the future. These are idols with no substance. So something I like to do every now and then just to keep a pulse on culture and where things are at is walk through bookstores and just look at books that are out and on display and what's being pushed to sell. And you'll notice if you go into bookstores recently, there is more and more about astrology and, and psychics and discerning hidden meanings from the stars. This is very common to turn to for help and deliverance 
today. But even though we as believers don't get into that, think of it this way. Here's one way to identify idols in our hearts. What are you tempted to turn to for help other than the Lord? Any coping mechanism you turn to more than God is likely an idol in your life. It could be a substance. It could be secular counsel that goes against God's word but sounds appealing or sounds good. So is there anything you trust in or turn to more than the Lord? Second, idolatry is vanity. Idolatry is vanity. Verse 3 says, for the statues of the peoples are vanity. And with a single phrase, God takes his hand and wipes away every false god and every false religion of the world as utterly useless. The word vanity is the same word found in Ecclesiastes. It's something that's temporary or brief or fading. So you know how if you're at a birthday party, you blow on a candle and you, it blows out and then you have that brief moment, that kind of wisp of smoke that comes up just for a second and it's gone? That's this word. It's something that is temporary, that it's there for a moment, then it's gone. Vanity. Idolatry is empty. There's nothing to it. And he explains why idols are vain further down in verse 8. But they, that is the idols, are altogether senseless and foolish. Let me paraphrase the word senseless to really bring out the language Jeremiah is using. Whatever idols are in Israel and in your life and in my life are idiotic. The ESV even has it this way, stupid. Verse 14, look at verse 14. Every man is senseless, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his graven images, for his molten images are a lie, and there is no breath in them. Verse 15, they, that is the idols, are vanity, a work of mockery. The prophet's words are as sharp as a razor blade. And the Lord is using, through Jeremiah, sanctified sarcasm and mockery on the idols. It's like Elijah when he's going back and forth with the prophets of Baal. And their false god isn't responding. And what does Elijah do in 1 Kings 18.27? He, he mocks them. He basically says, call out louder. Maybe your god is going to the bathroom. Maybe when he's done relieving himself, he'll stop by and help you. It's the same tactic here. The false gods are not there. Their vanity, the false gods we create for ourselves, are senseless. Why? Here's a third reason. Idolatry is man-made. Idolatry is man-made. The, the mall where I grew up had a store called Build-A-Bear. Is there Build-A-Bear here at Mobile? Okay, I'm seeing nodding head. So you go in, you choose the bear you want, and then you choose its clothes, and you choose its accessories, and the idea is you make it exactly how you want. That's what Jeremiah describes here. Only it's not build a bear, it's build an idol. Look at the middle of verse 3. Because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool, they make it beautiful with silver and with gold. He says, here's the materials. You can make an idol out of whatever you want. You can choose the material. Wood, silver, gold. In Judah's world, the idols were often carved wood. So they would carve the wood and then take gold or silver to cover it to make it look a little more fancy. Now, a person would take various cutting tools like an axe or a saw and fashion the image and then the silver and gold was often unique, valuable. Look at verse 9 where the silver and gold is described in more detail. Verse 9, beaten silver is brought from Tarshish. 
and gold from Uphaz, the work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of wise craftsmen. These are designer idols. It's not the cheap stuff. They're foreign, luxurious, name brand. Idols draped in blue and purple. That is the colors of royalty. Expensive. A purple dye was made from a certain kind of sea snails. So the sea snails would be harvested and then the shells would be taken and cracked. And a gland in the snail provided three to four drops of this fluid that was used to make the purple dye. It's labor-intensive and really expensive. But at least these idols look good. They look worthy of praise. Just one slight problem. You cut the wood, you carve it right, you make it appealing to your senses with limited edition gold and silver, you dress it up with rare purple dyed clothing, but it's not weighted just right, so you set it down and you step back to worship it and it just, it just thuds over because it doesn't have the right balance. It can't stand up straight, but there's a solution. Look at the end of verse 4. They strengthen it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Your, your translation may have so that it cannot move. The, the word for totter means to stagger. It's used elsewhere to describe a person who is drunk. So drunk people who can't walk in a straight line are more useful than idols. At least a drunk person can move most of the time. But making and worshiping a man-made idol may be silly, but it's also incredibly appealing then and now. And ask yourself from this description, why? Why is it so appealing to make it decorative and to give it all these lavish features? Because it is physical. Because it can be seen and touched and looked on with the eyes. It can be fashionable beautiful, pleasing to the senses. We sinfully crave what we can see and taste and touch, what we can physically experience and feel. That is often to our flesh far more appealing than worshiping a God who is spirit. At least with the idol, we can see and we can experience the most alluring idols and temptations in our lives are often those that appeal to our senses. The idol of a sinful relationship is appealing because it makes you feel a certain way. The idol of lust or the flesh pulls us in because it seems pleasing. The idol of gluttony often tastes so good even if it causes you to utterly set aside self-control. It pulls you in and immerses you in an experience. Apple recently has released their new VR headset called Apple Vision Pro. And I'm a tech nerd, so I was watching videos about it. And it's basically a computer that you wear, but it's a set of goggles. So you put it on your face, and you see the world through these goggles, and you can use these to experience anything you can think of. You can browse the internet, you can send email, you can watch movies, you can even have dinosaurs walk towards you, and it's got this incredible technology that you control with your hands. So if you watch a video of someone using it, they're like this. It's kind of like a crab. They're pinching their fingers together to control it, and there's already videos coming out of people wearing it in public, 
walking around the street or riding on a subway like this. Just kind of in the middle of doing something. They're like, I saw one video, for example, of a man. He was walking across the street in a city, and he's walking, and then he just stops in the middle of the street and just starts doing this. Why? If you watch videos with people using them, they're saying, well, you don't see what I see. When you're actually using the device, it's so real. It's so immersive. And that's how it appeals. People are drawn to what they can experience, to what is immersive and pleasing to their senses. That doesn't make it reality. Sin and idolatry often works the exact same way. It will appeal to your senses and your experience, and it will seem immersive, and it will still be a deceptive lie. Fourth, idolatry is useless. Idolatry is useless. This is similar to saying idols are vain, but it goes a step further. Look at verse 5. Like a scarecrow and a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot take a step. Here is more of Jeremiah's God-inspired sarcasm. How useful are your idols? As useful as a scarecrow and a cucumber patch. What a great image. Fun fact, looking through the Bible, this is the only place in the Bible that mentions scarecrows. But apparently, it's much like a scarecrow today, so an object placed in a field. So you would take an object, usually in the shape of a human, and use it to protect a crop. So they would build it, carry it to where they need to go, set it up, and then it doesn't actually do anything. I mean, at least a scarecrow serves a purpose. It doesn't physically move or do anything, but at least it keeps birds away, sometimes. Idols are like a scarecrow. If only it had a brain, or a mouth, or the ability to walk, or breathe, or do literally anything, but it can't. And notice the application in the middle of verse 5. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, neither can they do any good. Here's a great way to fight idolatry in our lives. Remember, idols can't help. Unlike the one true God, they can't save you. Unlike the one true God, they can't judge you. They can't reward you. They can't destroy or deliver you. Why? Because they can't do anything. They're more useless than a scarecrow. So don't turn to them and serve them. Don't give them the adoration and reverence due only to God. Every false God, every idol in your life will ultimately fail you. And let you down. That's why trusting in false gods is irrational. Paul uses similar language to describe idolatry in Romans 1. Romans 1, beginning in verse 22, Paul says this. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image and the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The human heart is built to worship. So when it refuses to worship the one true God, it will still worship something. This is why John Calvin called the human heart a factory of idols. We may not bow to physical idols, yet how common is it, in, even in Christian circles, to create a God that is kind of like the God of the Bible, just with the rough edges carved off. An idol that 
is all about us. A God that lacks wrath, or a God that affirms my sin, or a God whose ways bend and shift to match the times. Other times, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for a much more subtle idol, ourselves, our own carnal pleasure, or wealth, or leisure, or entertainment, or popularity. So from Jeremiah 10, just ask yourself, what are you tempted to turn to in your life? Where are there idols sitting beneath the surface of your heart? And here are two simple diagnostic questions to help you. I learned this in a counseling class in seminary, so I want to be clear, this is not original to me. But it has helped me greatly as I have tried to identify idols in my own life. So two questions to help you diagnose if there's an idol in your life. First, is there anything I am willing to sin to get? Is there anything I am willing to sin to get? Second, is there anything I am willing to sin if I don't get? Is there anything I am willing to sin if I don't get? So I'll start with the first question. Is there anything I am willing to sin to get? If you're willing to sin in your life to get something or achieve something, it's an idol. This is why people commit adultery. This is why people smudge sales numbers just a little bit. This is why Christian parents allow their children to completely abandon attending church for a sport, because they're willing to sin to get some sort of idol. The idol may be personal happiness, or a raise, or an accomplishment, or the approval of another person, or physical pleasure. We want it more than we want to obey God. That's an idol in our lives. Something I'm willing to sin to get. His second question, is there anything you're willing to sin if you don't get? You want something to happen, but it doesn't, so we sin. An easy example of this is you expect a smooth drive to work, but then you hit traffic. So you get disgruntled. You expect your spouse to do something, but they don't meet that expectation, so we get angry. Why? Because we idolize our own preferences, our own convenience. So when something threatens that convenience, we sin. So when you have a sinful response to something that doesn't go your way, there is an idol lurking somewhere beneath the surface. And our God loves us enough to hold up our idols in front of us, point at them, and mock so that we would see how foolish they are, continually turn away from them, and turn to the one who is wise. And that brings us to our second heading, doxology, our glorious God. Doxology, our glorious God. Verse 6 begins, there is none like you, O Yahweh. And with those words, we pivot from Jeremiah mocking idols to exalting the Lord. To demonstrate the folly of idolatry, he turns to doxology, to worship and praise of the one true God. And the rest of Jeremiah 10 is like a concentrated dose of theology shot straight into our veins. So now that we've worked through the passage and extracted what it says about idols, we can work through and ask, what does this tell us about our God? Who is this one who is worthy of our praise? And there are five truths about God that are found in the rest of this text. First, Our God is great. Our God is great. Verse 6 continues, you are great, and great is your name and might. 
everything about our God is great and majestic. His name, his love, his holiness. So verse 7 asks the rhetorical question, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Who should fear God? Answer, all of creation. In his greatness, he reigns sovereignly over kings and over authorities. He is incomparable in power and wisdom. And unlike idols, he's not man-made. Instead, he made men. In his greatness, Revelation 15, 3 and 4 praises him with the words of Jeremiah 10. In that scene, all those who have overcome the beast and now dwell in the presence of God sing this song to the Lamb in Revelation 15, 3 and 4. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. The middle of Jeremiah 10, 7 continues, for among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. He reigns over the wisest and the most influential people across all nations. There is not a single person or area of life that he does not command to submit to his lordship. If you could scour all nations across all time and choose the smartest, the most powerful, the most influential people who have ever lived. You can pick out the Winston Churchills and the Thomas Edisons and the Albert Einsteins and the George Washingtons and whatever influential leader you want to think of, you could bring them all together, collect all of their wisdom, all of their accomplishments, all that they've done, all their power and might and influence, and compared to our God, it would be like a single drop of water compared to the immensity of the world's oceans. Nothing compares to our God. So what is the application? Fear him. Submit to him. Why? Note the, verse, the middle of verse 7. Indeed, it is your due. It is what he is owed in ancient Israel, what he is owed in the future, and it is his due now. Everything exists from him, through him, and for him. God alone is worthy of your reverence and your trust and your obedience. Second, our God is true. Our God is true. Look at the beginning of verse 10. But Yahweh is the true God. So unlike the false idols, our God is true, meaning he is genuine. He's not fake like a scarecrow. He exists as the God who is in his very being true. He does not merely intellectually know what is true. He determines and declares what is true and false. He cannot lie and is trustworthy in all he says and does. And this is why, by the way, his standards of righteousness and his word do not change. This is why we don't need to constantly update our Bibles or modify or seek to update what God says. Times change. Ethical norms change, cultures change, but God and his truth is fixed. Unlike idols, neither he nor his ways wear out with time because he is true. So when his ways contradict the world's, as Paul says in Romans 3, 4, let him be true and everyone else a liar. God is true. Third, our God lives. Our God lives. Jeremiah 10, verse 10 continues, he is the living God and the everlasting king. 
And just think about how this contrasts with the idols. When, think about this, when does an idol begin? I mean, it's devised in the human mind. It physically begins when a tree is cut down or when steel is melted. Not so with God. He has no beginning, no end. He is eternal. There was never a time he was not. From eternity past, he is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, existing in perfect harmony and love. To say he is everlasting king is to say his reign is unlimited and unrestricted. He rules over all of time and history. Our God is alive today. Alive in his being as the eternal God, and alive and risen from the dead victoriously in the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God clothed himself in human flesh, and he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead, and is seated right now, alive at the right hand of the Father. So if you are in Christ, he intercedes for you today. And he hears your prayers today. And he is for his people and withholds nothing good from them and delivers you when you call out to him today. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin today because he is, always has been, and always will be the living God. Fourth, our God is full of wrath. Our God is full of wrath. Look at verse 10, which continues. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. This is the one who is against Judah in their sin. This is the one who is against the idolatry of the nations. The main threat in Jeremiah is not Babylon. It's God. And God says in Jeremiah 21 verse 5, I myself will war against you with an outstretched hand and a strong arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. That's Jeremiah 21.5. To help us grasp the sheer immensity of his wrath, notice verse 10 specifically mentions earthquakes. God often links his wrath and anger with his power in nature. So the power of his wrath is so great, it's like it can physically shake the earth. And today, the power of an earthquake is measured using the Richter scale. And I looked into this a little bit this week. An earthquake with a magnitude of 8.0 on the Richter scale is the energy equivalent of 6.27 million tons of TNT. So 8.0 on the Richter scale, 6.27 million tons. If you go up to a magnitude of 9.0, it's the equivalent of 99 million tons of TNT. That is the energy equivalent of about 25,000 nuclear bombs detonating at the same time. Were God's holy wrath and anger to come against the nations, they would cease to exist. They could not stand. The only reason the nations stand is because God allows them to by his grace. Were his wrath to come in full, the nations would collapse like a house of straw in a raging storm. So he says in verse 11, Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Now there's something unique about verse 11. Something that sets it apart from every other verse in the book of Jeremiah. The entire book is written in Hebrew, except for verse 11. Jeremiah 10 verse 11 is the only verse in the book which is written in Aramaic. 
And because of that, some suggest that verse 11 is an insertion or what sometimes is called a corruption, a verse added into the book long after it was originally written and evidence the Bible has been changed over time. But if we look carefully at the words in context, that explanation is unnecessary. In Jeremiah's time, Aramaic was the language of trade. It's the language of diplomacy. You could think of it this way. It's the language of the nations. So for all of chapter 10, he's been urging the house of Israel to turn away from idols and the idols that they're getting from the nations. But notice who specifically is God through Jeremiah speaking to in verse 11. Thus you shall say to them. Well, who is them? The nations he just mentioned at the end of verse 10. So after declaring the nations cannot stand against his wrath, God instructs Jeremiah, speak to the nations. Tell them in their language so they don't miss this, your gods will perish. Jeremiah's message wasn't just about Judah. The reign of this God extends far past the borders of one nation. It reaches not only to all nations in the ancient world, but all nations today. To all who are in rebellion against him on earth, in his wrath, the nations cannot stand, nor can any idol. Every idol will perish. The day will come when every false god is torn down. Every idol wiped away across the face of the earth. Sin will be defeated, and he will reign forevermore. And his wrath has continued to be linked with the power of nature in verses 12 and 13. Look at Jeremiah 10, 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. When he gives forth his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. In his wisdom, he created the cosmos, and the power of his word causes a tumult in the heavens. It's like a raging storm forming in the sky. So do you want to see the sheer immensity or catch a glimpse of the immensity of God's power? Look to the spectacles in the sky. Listen to thunder roll. See a bolt of lightning streak across the sky and listen to the winds of a storm howl. This is but a glimpse of the power of our God. And in that power, he is against the idolatry of the nations. So verse 15 reminds us again, compared to him, the gods of the nations are empty. Vain. So when Yahweh comes against them in the time of their punishment, they will perish. This God is stunning. Dare we say even terrifying. Which is why... We have this fifth and final truth about him in verse 16, which is all the more shocking and astounding. Fifth, our God is the portion of his people. Our God is the portion of his people. Verse 16, the portion of Jacob is not like these, for the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, Yahweh of hosts, is his name. Well, when you dive into the depths of God's infinite power, it would be easy to think he is so far beyond me. He is so out of reach. Not according to verse 16. A portion is an allotment or a share. The word is used elsewhere to refer to an inheritance that would pass from a father 
to his son. So in the immediate context, Yahweh is the portion of Jacob, his chosen nation, Israel. And Psalm 73, 26 echoes this idea and applies it personally to all who trust in the Lord. If you trust in the Lord, this is what Psalm 73, 26 says. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The most astounding reality in the believer's life is as simple and profound as this. The greatest gift God has given us is himself. We know God. He is the generous portion that fills and satisfies. And this is not like when you go to a fancy restaurant and you look at the menu, you recognize like three ingredients and you order something and when it comes to your table, it's put down in front of you and it's like two bites of food. That's not this. Portion, is, it's like something that is filling. It is all satisfying. It is everything we need. And just compare that with our pathetic idols and our sin. Ask yourself, which portion would you rather have and turn to in your life? The, the one true God who is high and who is exalted over all or some cheap knockoff that can never ultimately satisfy or save you? He is indeed the portion of his people. He is our inheritance. To all who come to him in faith, the wrath you deserve, he willingly took upon himself. We cannot endure his indignation. If we did, we would perish for eternity. Yet this God who is great and might, who is worthy and wise, who is the true God and everlasting king, takes the form of a man, and he willingly allows that wrath and indignation to fall upon himself so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord Jesus Christ bore the wrath reserved for us. So would we praise him, not idols, because indeed it is his due. Let's pray. We praise you, O Lord, for how you have revealed yourself to us. We, we say along with Jeremiah, indeed, praise is your due. We owe you our lives. We owe you every good gift you've given us. And most of all, we owe you our salvation. There is nothing we could do to come to you in our sin. The, the, wor the words and warnings of this passage that we would perish would apply. But we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to yourself in grace and that you are glorious and you are beautiful and you are a God who saves. So help us to turn away from any cheap knockoff or imitation or false idol. Help us to see it for what it is so that we would praise you in our lives. And it's in the glorious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.